0: Can I please have your attention? Can you dig
1: it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on by, check out our stuff, um, become a member, uh, save the cheerleader, save the world. So, um, full disclosure, because I am nothing if not transparent to our listeners, I, um... I was supposed to have um, somebody else on today, and then through uh, just a hellacious confluence of events, uh, we had a guest cancel, and I didn't want to go dark. And one of the great things about the, the growing empire that is The Dispatch is that we have plenty of people who always have interesting things to say. And so I did not go to the break glass in case of emergency guest, uh, Chris Starwalt. Instead, I went to our in-house break glass in case of actual like terrorist emergency uh, writer, (laughs) um, uh, uh, Klon Kitchen, and he agreed at short notice to do this. uh, And uh, so like literally in the last 10 minutes, we agreed to put this whole thing together. So we're just going to play it by ear. Klon, welcome back to The Remnant. My pleasure. So
0: happy to be here again.
1: You are, you, are a, you are a scholar and a gentleman for doing this. Thank you very much. So um, I see, I have not read it yet. Uh, I see you have a new piece out in the national interest. And I figured, like, since I promised you this would not be heavy lifting for you, uh, uh, why don't we sort of start there? The piece is, and we'll put it in the show notes, why Russia's cyber warriors haven't crippled Ukraine. So, Colin, why, why haven't Russia's cyber warriors <laughs> crippled Ukraine?
0: Well, I'm really glad you asked, Jonah. Thanks. Um, <laughs> But, you know, look, a lot of people, including myself, anticipated that, you know, Ukraine would kick off with a pretty extensive Russian cyber attacks against things like, you know, Ukrainian command and control and uh, civilian communications, critical uh, infrastructure, that kind of thing. And while we did see some action uh, against, like, there's this uh, American satellite communications company called Viasat, and, and we saw this really limited wiperware attack, wiperware just being... Like ransomware, but instead of locking yourself up, it just deletes it, and you can't get it back. We saw we saw limited uh, of cases of, of those things, but generally speaking, the anticipated kind of cyber onslaught didn't show up. And you know, now that we're two months into it, we're starting to get a sense of of maybe why that was the case. And in, in the piece that you mentioned for National Interest, I I posit three rationales as to why that likely has happened. So the first one is. That it was a, a strategic choice by, by Russia um, not to employ large-scale destructive code. So you may remember that, uh, let's see, back in 2017, uh, Russian hackers uh, unleashed the NotPetya virus. And that ended up spreading around the world and causing more than like $10 billion in damages. I mean, just a massive, massive thing, including inside Russia. Um and it would make sense that uh, that Putin would have thought that, you know, using that kind of software for Ukraine would likely kind of get outside, possibly hit NATO countries and NATO neighbors there of Ukraine, and things were already going to be tense enough. No reason to kind of introduce that type of static into the conversation, which I think was right. You know, I, NATO says that that cyber can be the kind of thing that triggers Article 5, but like how all that would work is still unclear. And so, yeah, I think it makes sense that Russian would have made a strategic choice not to do kind of a big attack like that. What specifically would
1: just, you know, to sort of illuminate it, you know, sort of, I'll use question begging correctly. um, uh, Saying why haven't they done this massive cyber attack uh, assumes that we all know what that massive cyber attack would have looked like. Like, what, was the, what would the cyber attack that you anticipated something, you know, what, 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 did it, what, what would it have looked like the thing that you thought was going to happen to Ukraine?
0: Yeah. So um, what I would have anticipated was things like um, cyber attacks that interrupted the Ukrainian military or the government's um, kind of command and control. So the, the, the networks they used to talk to them, talk to each other, the, to make decisions, to communicate those decisions out to, you know, field commanders, that type of stuff. Um, we would have expected them to kind of screw with the equipment, the military equipment. So everything from uh, air defense systems to, you know, tactical communications, walkie talkies, the whole bit. Um, if they wanted to, and this will, this will go into the kind of my second point, but th- th- if they wanted to, you know, hitting at least aspects of critical infrastructure in Ukraine to just make the logistics of resisting the Russian military more difficult, you know, lock down their fuel supply, you know, so if Russia had, for example, their logistics stuff together, which they clearly didn't, um, then you know, if you've got your logistics supply chains assured, well, then if you knock out the enemy's logistics and access to gas and that kind of thing, uh, well, that that helps you, right? It makes it more difficult for them to resist. So you would have expected those kinds of things. And the reason you would expect them is, is, one, we know they actually have the capability. We've seen Russia do this in the past. So it's not a matter of them not being able to do it. Two, it provides real military advantage. I mean, there's, there's real material benefit to conducting these operations. And then three, they're relatively a you know a light lift and, and low risk for the for the Russian military. It's not like they absorb greater risk by doing those things. And so that was that was kind of in my head uh, as I sat down to write this. It's like, well, okay, how do I explain this? Because they're obviously not doing what we thought.
1: So I heard somewhere I'm uh, in I want to make sure I heard it right. I think I heard it on NPR the other day, or maybe it was on one of the Economist podcasts, that the Russian comms are not encrypted.
0: Yeah. Um, how, how, why? <laughs> okay, so this, <laughs> that, that is the exact right setup. So, so my second point was um, Russia made a determination to leave Ukraine's critical infrastructure unmolested because its military needed it. Mm. which is something that we did not anticipate, right? So, a, you know, the ability to deploy secure communications is a pretty fundamental capability of modern combat. Like, this is, this is kind of basic blocking and tackling. But what we've seen is the Russian military actually relying on um, commercial radios and civilian kind of spectrum for communications, Um. That is in part because they you know the the equipment they have isn't that isn't as good as we had anticipated, but more right likely it's actually that they haven't they didn't have enough of it, so they just weren't able to do it at scale um, that they needed i mean they had a they have a large force one hundred and fifty thousand people you know and uh, and that requires a you know a, a lot of infrastructure and they they apparently just don't have it so they have been using um civilian infrastructure like. Uh, civilian spectrum and and, and even normal walkie talkies. Now the amazing thing about that <laughs> is that it's made it very very easy for Ukraine and the United States and others to intercept those communications and even screw with them a little bit. The Ukrainians have, you know, like jammed their their comms and and also kind of broadcast you know different. Me- you can imagine some of the messages they broadcast to uh, to Russian soldiers, and um, I think that helps explain why, uh, at least in part, why some of that wasn't taken down initially is because the Russians realized they needed it. I think the other part of that would be that they really did believe, the Russians, that they were going to roll in pretty quickly uh, and and kind of knock this out. And there would have been a rationale that said, well, okay, we don't want to go through and break all the infrastructure because we're going to need it to govern. And that's just going to piss everybody off and and make you know a domestic opposition even more difficult. So let's just you know, do it this way. Not take it all down, and then we'll have it to use when we're in charge. Yeah, we were talking right before we
1: started recording. I've seen this mentioned a couple of places on Twitter. Uh, my friend Daniel Hanan had a piece in the Examiner, just sort of asserting these things. And I, I like Dan. I, I'm sure he's read it somewhere or he knows something. He used to be a member of the European Parliament, so he's got friends in that world. But I just can't find a news story on it that. Uh, and it's been a busy morning, so I'm sure it exists. I just haven't found it. Um, you know, Putin has is either a has fired 150 members of the FSB and put a bunch of them in jail and a few in like a like a bad jail. Um and you know, and that is a that is a distinction that means something in Russia, you know. And um the um and the assertion is made that uh the problem was was that these FSB guys were told go bribe all the Ukrainian mayors and generals and and stakeholders and say and bribe them just to sort of not get in the way of a lightning strike invasion and regime change operation and the fsb guys figuring that we're never actually going to invade ukraine said that they did it and they just pocketed the cash and again i don't know that that's true i I mean i trust dan got that from somewhere i just i want to read more about it because it's interesting to me it actually i've been as listeners know i'm like on episode 81 of the Mike Duncan Russian Revolution podcast. And um, we recently got through about why the Russian, the whites in the Russian Civil War uh, did so badly. And one of the things was that the Brits sent an enormous amount of aid, and some other countries did too, uh, for the whites to beat the Bolsheviks. And the whites were just so corrupt that, you know, every Gatling gun or artillery piece that came in, one side of the tent, they just sold it out the back of the tent. Um, And so nothing got to the the field. And I just think it's sort of fascinating that, that the extent of Russian corruption was so much that they just can't fight wars the way we all assumed they could. But this sort of raises an interesting question. I don't want to get you in trouble with your friends in these various communities, as we call them, but is the fact that we just had no idea, first of all, A, how crazy this... Invasion that that Putin would actually do this, right? Because everyone's like, "Yeah, hey, I'm not going to really do this." And then B, the fact that his army was in such or as or as command and control structure, whatever the term you guys use, um, was in such disarray and so rotten to the core that they couldn't execute a military operation the way we thought. It. Isn't that sort of an intelligence failure on us um, that we didn't know that?
0: Well, I mean, look, I think in one sense you you have to answer that question, yes, in the sense of you know, we have large groups of people who are paid to know these kinds of things and, and we were wrong. I think though um, that, that that nomenclature of kind of intelligence failure emanates from a misunderstanding of, of how intelligence works. So the, the, what I'll say there is I've, I think one of the most apt descriptions of, of intelligence is imagine you're in a pitch black room putting together a puzzle that, uh, is just black. That's the image. It's just a black image. Uh, and now imagine that half the pieces are missing. That's intelligence, right? I mean, when we talk about intelligence, what we're talking about is like, okay, even in the case of, of, of human intelligence. Okay. So we've got a spy and he's a high ranking Russian general, and he's telling us, uh yeah you know we're we, you know i, I I'm, I'm getting from my bosses i was with putin yesterday and you know we're we're, we're dumping a couple of billion dollars into these new tanks and they're supposed to be this that and the other thing and you know what i know we've got a program where we're buying off ukrainian officials so that if we ever have to roll in uh it's going to be you know it's going to be easy because they're just going to throw their hands up and let us walk in well you know from from that source's perspective, that's exactly what's happening. That's what he's been told is happening. There's money moving that's that would justify that. and yep, I, and that seems like a Putin kind of thing, and we're seeing confirm uh, confirming information otherwise. but you don't you know but you unless you're talking to the one guy who's pocketing the money and he's willing to tell you by the way, I'm pocketing the money, you know the, the, some of this stuff just never comes out until you get into the wash. Um, and, you know, it's even more difficult. And we saw this with, uh, you know, Saddam, it's even more difficult when the leaders themselves think that this stuff is real and is happening. Um, you know, Saddam thought he had a weapons program and he was being told that. Um, and this is the, this is the dilemma of, of the dictator, right? You know, it's, it's this whole, this whole notion of like, if you don't let people tell you hard things, pretty soon they'll stop. And I think that's what's happened here with 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 Putin. And I think more broadly, so we're talking about the FSB thing. And again, like you said, I don't know if it's true. It's the kind of thing that certainly can be true. But it's certainly plausible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean this totally is well plausible. within the realm of believable. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it does help explain why FSB people are disappearing. And you know, I think one category of person you miss is the people that he's putting into into the ground. Uh, I think that's definitely happened. But there is this thing, you know, there was a bunch of there was a couple billion dollars spent on military modernization. And it now seems uh, that a lot of that money went into a couple of uh, general officers pockets uh, as well. So this would fit right within that context. Let's say for the sake of argument that
1: Putin is not deposed in the next year, three years. Right. Um, But he doesn't win Ukraine. He ends up murdering a lot more Ukrainians, unfortunately, tragically, uh, criminally. But he also just has exposed his military as really now officially at best a second, maybe even a third-tier threat, in part because so much of it has either been destroyed or compromised in the field. Um, what is, does, do, do our strategic assessments of like geopolitics really change all that much? Do we become we are already more worried about China than we are of Russia in the first place. And we're already more sort of hip to the cyber threat, which is what Putin would probably have to rely on more of given that is hard, hard stuff just didn't do what he wanted it to do. So does it actually change the, the big picture worldview of, you know, people who have to think about this stuff?
0: I think it could, um, because Putin and we're already seeing this, right, we, you know, especially if, like, the FSB stuff is real, um, Putin's not just going to sit still, right? Um, and so uh, the questions I'm asking myself these days is, all right, so if you're Putin, it would seem to make sense that uh, you need to get the world to be afraid of you still. I mean, they've, they've still got nukes, right? So some mm-hmm. of the fundamental assessments are still there. Um although it probably does cause us to do a hard look at like all right what do we think is the status of those capabilities and and we start prioritizing that as an intelligence target in terms of you know are those missiles just sitting in silos rusting away and you know we right. want we want to know the answers to those kinds of questions i mean guys in charge of missiles can take bribes and spend it on themselves too exactly right, right. exactly <laughs> right um and so you know but if you're putin you need to reassert yourself you you need to, for his foreign policy model to work, you have to be dangerous and so he needs he he will have to do something where he reestablishes the credibility of that danger and I think you're right I think cyber would feature heavily there so i I would actually think it's possible that he could get far more aggressive on the cyber side as a means of uh, reminding everybody that you know his tanks may stink, but he's no tin horn um, you know threat um, yeah. And yeah, I, I would imagine I would imagine that kind of that kind of kicking in. I, a lot of this too is gonna. I'm not quite sure how China and Russia are gonna sync up on all of this. Uh, right now, Beijing is showing a, a proclivity or a willingness to, um, you know, help shore up Russia to some degree. Um, all of this is causing a lot of policymakers in the United States and more broadly in the West to to at least talk about being more aggressive toward China, which then could push them into a more overt, clear relationship with Russia. So I I think we're in the early days. Uh, I do think the international system is, um, is, is evolving here. And then I think you're right. Finally, that he's going to get more aggressive and more awful in Ukraine, which is going to make all the human rights stuff um, and, and the genocide stuff even more difficult. I mean, there's talk about you know, could we cook could we kick Russia off of the Security Council and the United nations? I mean, that would make imminent sense for us to do, uh, but there's a lot about the United Nations that makes imminent sense that we never do, so I'm not quite sure how that evolve. I don't know i mean I think it's a I think it's a really interesting question, yeah, I mean i like my understand i mean I haven't looked at this in a long long time,
1: but my understanding about the permanent five sort of like you know you know you know these terms better than I do, but the Permanent Five status is more like firmware than software, <laughs> and I don't think you <laughs> can right. just like rewrite it. It's, it's like the whole thing would come apart, but it has always driven me crazy the way we imbue the UN with all of this moral authority when literally the underlying core principle of the, the main decision body is might makes right, right? We put Stalin and we put Mao, well, that was... When we put China on, was Mao still in charge? I, I can't remember. But we put, you know, two authoritarian dictatorships on that thing, simply because they had nukes and they were powerful. You know, and it wasn't like you know any other reason. And that's so. I would be fine with g- kicking Russia off in principle and China, frankly. But
0: uh, well, and the UN or, is also the only place where dictators and autocrats insist on democracy. Right. You know, that's right. the thing that is. It's just it, it as an institution there's, I mean, there's arguments for the institution as an institution, but as it's currently kind of organized, it, it's, it's definitely failing to meet its, meet its needs.
1: Yeah. I have an entirely instrumentalist attitude towards the UN. It's like, if we can get something we need out of it, great, but don't tell me, Oh no, the UN voted, you know, said that we were bad. You know, it just means nothing to me. Um, um Except maybe as a public relations problem, for people who do take it seriously, but it doesn't mean I take it seriously. You know, before this all happened, Ukraine was sort of known as one of the other hotspots for a lot of like malware and ransomware and bad computer things. Um, Do we know if Ukraine is doing anything to Russia in the cyber realm other than, like, hacking their comms?
0: Yeah. So, and that goes to actually my third point in that piece in terms of why we haven't seen, you know, Russia do all the bad cyber stuff that we anticipated, and that is that they actually tried, and they've been rolled back. So just uh-huh. last week, General Nakasone, the uh, head of the uh, National Security Agency, NSA, and commander of U.S. Cyber Command, uh, he's dual-headed there, uh, was testifying before Congress and, and and has said again that back in December they deployed what they call hunt forward teams. So these are U.S. military cyber personnel who were I think initially deployed to Kyiv uh, and then when the invasion happened pulled out and are now in kind of surrounding European areas. Um, and they were hardening. They were helping. The, they were working side by side with the Ukrainians to harden. Uh, their infrastructure, and then to kind of go and find Russian bad guys and kick them out. And I think that was actually pretty successful. So I suspect that there likely was some more planned activities that just were prevented from occurring. Um, and I know that those, um, those hunt forward teams are still in place. They're still doing that work. Um, and that's a, that's a big proof of concept. So this is a relatively new uh, warfighting concept that we've been rolling out. Um, I think this shows the utility of it and that, it, it, you know, with a relatively small force can actually have a pretty significant impact. Um, And I do think part of that is, um, uh, you know, helping Ukrainians to kind of screw with Russian command and communications inside of Ukraine, certainly. Um, Interfering with what we call, you know, their um, their kind of operational picture, their understanding of the battlefield, who's going where, what's, you know, that kind of happens how that's all happening um so we yeah. have we helped with the assassination of these generals do you think uh i suspect that some of our intelligence support to ukraine includes the geolocation of key targets like russian generals um you got to be really careful with how that's done right uh i doubt that anybody said hey general Badkai kozanov here is right at this geo cord. you should Uh, you you know, go sniping. Uh, I do know, uh, or let me say, um, it is highly probable that the U.S. (laughs) government um, was instrumental in actually training Ukrainian snipers over the last decade. Um, There's a reason why they're as good as they are, and they are really good. Um, But, you know, for targets like that, typically it's uh, look, there's good intelligence that a high-ranking general officer is associated with U.S. unit moving along this kind of line of communication or corridor. Um, wouldn't it be awful if a um, if a if a if a drone Hellfire you know dropped on dropped on him? So that kind of stuff does happen. I I do think that um, the Ukrainians deserve all the credit in the world for the way that they are fighting. Zelensky really has. I mean, he's an impressive dude. Uh, and, you know, he's building a legend around himself right now. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's all true. The point is, is he's doing what leaders do and he's he's killing it. Um, but there's a there's a, a lot of support, uh, not just intelligence, but even kind of strategy. There are people at the Pentagon in the tank and in other locations who are keeping a situational understanding of what's going on and thinking about, OK, we think the Ukrainians could really mount a good you know, repulsing effort if they did X and we'll communicate to that to them and help them understand that. Look, I think there's a real reason that you might choose to do this. And, um, I think that helps account for a lot of the, of the good news that's coming out of Ukraine in terms of how they've been able to resist. What is your
1: best understanding of what the whole, I mean, unless there's a lot of cool stuff that's going that we're just not saying, and I, I assume there is some cool stuff that we're sending over to the Ukrainians that we're not telling the world that we're sending because you don't necessarily want to tell the world, you know, all the, you know, you want to have some, have some surprise in the crates. Right. But it does feel like we are not, we are certainly, according to Zelensky not sending everything that he wants. And I get that I put the argument about the jets aside, right. You know, which I, you know, I have my own preferences about it, but that I think that's a sort of a category difference. What is the holdup with like sending the switchblades? You know, what is the holdup with not with sending um, more and more stuff? Is there is it a policy thing? Is I've talked to a lot of people who and they all who who have experience like yours or have been in different parts of this stuff, or let's just say government experience, and they all say it smells like the lawyers. So, like, what is your explanation about wh- why we just haven't gone full on lend lease yet?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely a a policy challenge. This is not a logistics challenge for us. Like, I mean, moving military material into another location, we got that mapped, right? I mean, the military knows how to do that very well. The CIA knows how to do that very well. That is particularly one that borders several NATO allies. Yeah, I mean, well, and it's again, it's not as though our engagement with Ukraine only started in March. Right. I mean, right. this is, this is, we had a running start on all of this. So this is very much a policy thing. Now, um, policy matters, uh, and, and, and we do need to be careful. Um, that being said it from, I think on the intelligence sharing side of this, we've, we've largely, uh, navigated that. And, and, and that seems to be flowing pretty freely. You don't hear Zelensky really complaining about that on the actual weapon systems. Um, one, I don't know that we have to give them the super-duper awesome, super-secret missile that can, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Because even if you gave it to them, I'm not sure they'd know how to use it, right? A lot of that technology right. is predicated on, on on other technology and on experience and, and the ability to use it. Um, but things like you, you mentioned the Switchblade drones. Um, so for those who don't know, there's kind of two variants. There's the small Switchblade 300, which is essentially, um, it, you know, it's maybe... I don't know, uh, three feet long kind of thing. It can be launched out of a backpack and um, uh, one person can use it and it can kill, you know, 20 or 30 people. You know, it's, a, it's like a suicide mm-hmm. drone. They also have another variant called a 600, the Switchblade 600, which is essentially a, um, a, a drone that is a tank killer. So it's a bigger or piece of ordnance and can zoom in on a tank and, and, and take it out. Um, both are scheduled to be sent to Ukraine. Um, delays on something like that could be, uh, you know, lawyers dotting I's and T's about, you know, does, you know, what is our justification? that This doesn't cross some type of lethal aid support that would bring us in. I imagine that decision was already made before it was announced that we would give those. And this could be just a logistics thing like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. we want to send them 2000 each. Well, the manufacturer has got to build them and, and kind of get them credit and send them out. So th- that kind of real life, uh, Friction can can slow things down, but th- from day one, there has been the smell of kind of lawyerly hesitation, where all of the operators and even the policymakers are saying "go, go, go." The lawyers are are, it seems, are are kind of slowing things down, and it's one of those things where it's very easy for me to be annoyed by that and frustrated by that. Um, Because I do think that they're given too much voice sometimes. Um, That being said, there's a reason for it, and we we do need to as we take steps. So you've mentioned previously the fact that we're calling Russia or uh, Putin uh, a a war criminal. I'm fine with that policy, but it has implications, and you know it, it it closes off some pathways and opens up others, and I'm fine with that. But I would like to think that we were doing that. With full knowledge of all those things and not just because the president had kind of an off script, uh, you know, right. kind of commentary. Well, the same things here. You know, I, I, I think it's good to switch blades. I think it makes sense. Um, I hope that somebody did take a look at that. But then once that's been done, I think, okay, you've done your job. Let's execute the policy. And, you know, this is the, this is the speed of government. Um, and Zelensky is always rightly going to 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 want more and to want it faster. He has every reason for those things. I expect him to do that. Um, and you know, we're always going to have these kind of bureaucratic hoops that we have to jump through to make it work.
1: The other thing that drives me crazy on all of this, and I'm just using you as the person I get to complain to, <laughs> um, is that the Biden administration keeps saying, "Well, we can't do the X or we can't do Y because that would be escalatory," but you know correct me if i'm wrong escalatory is not a binary thing in military doctrine right i mean there's like 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 an an escalation is uh it's a granular thing right i mean there's 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 there's, there's like a nuking moscow would be a major escalation
0: uh but they're thinking fall those, short of that
1: <laughs> that's right that's right and then uh you know uh blowing up putin's yacht would be an escalation but not the same level of escalation right and um and yet they talk about it like it is um you know it's like the old phrase you know you can't be a little bit pregnant they like like any escalation is unacceptable with with a nuclear power but like poland could declare it's going in not as a nato thing tomorrow and that's not a nato escalation that's not a u.s policy escalation there are lots of things we could do that would be or or the west could do um that would be escalations that then put the pressure on putin but aren't necessarily like oh we gave we we gave him no choice but to launch a thermonuclear war and that rhetoric i think is debilitating for the sphere of the range of operations that the the United States government has in all of this
0: well there's something literally called the escalation ladder right in IR theory in international relations theory there's an, this uh, this idea of of the ladder and you recognize exactly like you said like okay there's the ultimate escalation where we're kind of all glowing green at the end of it but there's things that fall well short of that and that's a natural that's an, that's an unavoidable part of conflict i mean look at the point where this thing went live and, and bullets are being shot, missiles are being fired, people are dying. Uh, we were in a place where everything we had done up until that point was, was simply not sufficient for deterrence. And what we've actually been doing is escalatory, right? I mean, where we are now is not where we started at the beginning of this uh, in March in terms of everything from sanctions to our military support to Ukraine. Um, so we have been escalating in one sense. Um, The annoyance that you're expressing, which I'm in complete agreement with, um, beyond the kind of silly binary aspect to it, is it's rooted in, well, we don't want to piss off Putin. Mm -hmm. Well, no, no, no. that's (laughs) That's not how this works. We need to be mindful that we don't want to start a nuclear war. It is a nuclear power, obviously. But if we want to change Putin's calculus that necessarily means turning the screw tighter, right? And, and we need him to be in a position where he is worried about if this next step that he is considering is going to escalate things with the US or with NATO more broadly. We, we need him worried. Now, I don't want Putin to feel like he's got all the freedom of movement in the world and that we're just constantly reassuring him about how, look, we're not trying to get you angry. We're not trying to get you upset. You know We're just doing this over here now. Um, there is, there's a lot of room, uh, between being unnecessarily flippant and aggressive and, you know, acting to affect change. Um, the good news is, I think, practically speaking, we're doing those things largely. Uh, we could be doing more, I think. Um, and the jets, I think is one of those things. Um, but on the political rhetoric side, which is not inconsequential, we do seem to be just continually milly mouthed in a way that undermines some of that good tactical work that we're doing. Yeah. So look, let's say,
1: um, I think we both agree this is an unlikely thing, but, uh, let's say that Biden decides get me kitchen and (laughs) brings you in. (laughs) And what, what, what do you tell him? Like, what are the, what are the three things that you say we got to do? Or what are the three things that you would tear up that we're currently doing and replace with you know, some other policy?
0: Wow. Um, that's a good question. I'd like to remind all of our listeners that I am primarily a cyber and intelligence guy. <laughs> um, uh, okay, a, a couple of things. Uh, one, I would clear up a little bit of this strategic ambiguity because it's not the good kind of ambiguity. I would say, you know, Mr. President, I think for the long term, we need to be able to communicate to the American people and to the West more broadly that regardless of how Ukraine shapes up, the international order is changing and, and we're, we're going to be entering into something new and we need to be communicating what that is and what that's going to mean. Among those things, I think, is a um, a massive investment in defense spending. And you're going to have to explain how we can spend the trillions of dollars that we already spend and how that's somehow not enough. And you're going to have to explain why that's the case. And you know, ideally, you're going to bring in some some reform so that we can get rid of some of the waste, uh, that is undeniably present in defense acquisition and spending. So I think that I think setting the conditions for kind of long-term strategic change is essential. Uh, two, um, if the lawyers are standing in the way, I'd say, Mr. President, we need to clear this out. We know what our policy is. We need to to kind of begin executing this policy. And what we want is we want Zelensky to be able to say, there's nothing I have asked for within reason that the the United States has not only provided, but provided quickly. Um, We have a strategic interest in seeing them win. Um, We, even in the Donbass, like, I, I think where things seem to be shaping up now, where the where the conflict seems to be reorienting, we have a strategic interest in seeing the the Ukrainian military kind of fight this out and just make it a complete meat grinder for the Russians. Mm. Um, and and we need to give them the material and support necessary. I think we're inclined to do that, but I would redouble that point uh, with the president. And then third, finally, I, I would make the point that, sir you know, as this moves on, I think the the likelihood of a more aggressive Russia in the cyber domain seems likely. Um, we need to begin anticipating what that might look like, how we might mitigate it, and what we might do to convince them to choose another path. And we need to be executing that now, right? So, you know, Putin may ultimately conclude that a large-scale disruptive cyber attack in the United States or within one of our partners and allies is the best way to reassert himself, intimidate foes, and regain the advantage. And while I think, Mr. President, that would be a costly miscalculation, it certainly would not be the first time he's done so. So I think those are kind of three points that I would start with, with, you know, 30 seconds of prep time. Sure, sure, sure. But it is, I mean, like, the strategic
1: importance of, like, making this as unpleasant as possible for Putin, I know we're not supposed to say that we're in favor of regime change, even though the President of the United States did Kind of say it in Poland, um, and well, I'll just go on the record. I'm perfectly in favor of regime change in Russia, so long as the costs are fairly minimal for you know the United States. Of, or let me—I don't want to say minimal, tolerable, right? Um, I've always said that every, in foreign policy, cost-benefit analysis is like really important. And like, if if you ask me, am I in favor of regime change in China? And I'm like, well, if it costs us one dollar and one broken toe of one soldier yeah let's do it you know but if it costs us 20 million americans in a smoldering city then no i don't want to do it right it's cost-benefit analysis everything else is like it's a sliding scale um but like when russia has to re-conscript people who have been out of the army for years in order just to hit the manpower needs that they have that has to put Crazy internal pressure on their political system and on the legitimacy of the regime in ways that strike me as entirely beneficial. If you actually want to see Putin go,
0: right? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm turning to my intelligence community and I'm saying, "All right, what would he? What? What do we think it would take to facilitate? You know, a non-U.S. intervention-driven regime change in Russia? What? what somebody right. tell me." Get your smart people together and tell me what that would even look like. Then tell me what's our current posture for affecting that kind of a strategy and what would you need to make it happen, right? And then I make a decision as the president, like, okay, this is something worth pursuing and here are the resources to do it. Or you decide, you know, this is just in the cards right now. But all of this, you know, regime change is is a fine policy outcome. Um, And it doesn't always, as you said, it doesn't always require, you know, US military invasion to effect. I mean, I want a hard assessment. Like, you know, these are the kinds of things that the president can ask for. Like, who in the Kremlin do we actually own? And and what level of of um of assurance do I have that they are in fact owned by us? And then what would it take to get them to move uh and to make this happen? And, you know, we we have people dedicated to thinking about these things. And so you just gotta hear them out and see what it says and you know, it's not a science. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, one plus one equals, th- you know, two. It's, um, it, it, it's art. So it's all, and it's a dark art. So it's, it's, it's hard to kind of have confidence in, but this is the way some of this policy gets done.
1: I mean, it'd be nice to know that we own some people in the Gremlin. I, 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 I'm totally open to just who is available for rent you know, <laughs> for the foreseeable future is like good enough for me. All right, so let's, let's, let's change gears a little bit. Uh, we were recently at an off-the-record event uh, for AEI, and so I, I, I don't want to, like, recount all that stuff directly, but I, this is stuff that you've talked and written about widely elsewhere. Um, and I listened to a panel that you were on talking about Taiwan um, and the, the semiconductor issue, right? Um, can you just sort of, for the... the, the for the, you know, the elevator explanation for how is it that all of our, like almost all of our semiconductors come out of the, this one besieged Island off the coast of China and, um, what it means for sort of like national security and global security and on and all that. Cause I think a lot of people don't really realize that that picture, um, of the situation.
0: Okay, so very quickly, semiconductors are essentially the brains that make everything that plugs in work. Uh, increasingly, um, they're they're essential. If it were if it were a natural element, it would be an element that we needed for you know kind of basic everyday life. And uh, the reason why uh, the Taiwan semiconductor company or TSMC is is the you know center of gravity for. Um, the global s- semiconductor supply chain is because that is the most economically and logi- logistically efficient outcome that the market could produce. So over the last couple decades, TSMC you know, spent the money uh, and it you know, had government subsidies, but it spent the money to acquire the talent and the machinery and the capability to, to build and manufacture and, and increasingly design uh, bleeding edge semiconductor uh, chips. Integrated circuits, and now everybody's waking up to the national security implications of that reality, especially in the context of an increasingly belligerent China when it comes to Taiwan. So China understands Taiwan to be a you know a part of its nation, um, and for decades um, those two countries have existed in what they call the status quo, where it's you know kind of one nation, two systems. Um, but 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 mainland China, Beijing, the, the Chinese Communist Party, particularly, has always had aims on what they call reunification, where Taiwan essentially just gives up its system and becomes a part of the Chinese system, and it's now just an island off of mainland China. Um, and there's growing concern that that China would use military means uh, to affect that reunification. So that's the broader context. Um, what it means is. Um, the, the 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 beating heart of the modern tech economy um, is now in one of the most politically contested geolocations in the world, and it 's the kind of thing where we can 't just build another one um, for a whole lot of reasons. We are going to build semiconductor uh, fabrication facilities in in the United States. Uh, many of them in Arizona, including fabrication, um, they call them FABs. So uh, FABs uh, for TSMC. But there's a couple things working against those, you know, coming online early. Um, one, they're really, really, really complicated and expensive. Uh, billions of dollars to build one of these things and really, really hard. And there's just a limited number of experts with the actual expertise and, um, and experience to, to kind of get them going. So it's just slow. Two, Taiwan has a perverse incentive not to build its best stuff somewhere else because having these semiconductors in Taiwan is a part of what they call the silicon shield, right? It's precisely why the United States and all kinds of other countries are really, really concerned about what happens in Taiwan is because they have this capability. So they have this perverse incentive not to give away the thing that actually is keeping them you know, at the forefront of everybody's mind. And so, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a really big deal. And China, mainly communist China, relies on this, these same
1: chips too, right?
0: The it's the like, number one import, the number one import in China, above every other import, is uh, integrated circuits. They spend more on ice on, on integrated circuits than they do even on oil. And so, what what is it about these? I mean, uh,
1: you, this is going to surprise people that I have to ask this question because I'm such a well known expert on the manufacture of semiconductors. But uh, what is it about these semiconductors that you can't, like, if, if, I mean, I couldn't, but, like, if I gave you, if I gave the right person a uh, Mercedes BMW and said, make me one of these, they could reverse engineer Mercedes BMW pretty well. You know, they wouldn't get everything perfect, but, it, like, they, would, they could figure out what makes it special. And a Mercedes BMW is not a thing. I just realized a Mercedes, Mercedes or a BMW. Beans. Yeah, and sorry, my brain's not right today. And um, uh, why can't we like reverse engineer one of these semiconductors and say, okay, this is how they made it. I mean, what is so special about these things?
0: It's based in part because uh, the the process of building a um, a, a what we will call a a bleeding edge or a cutting edge integrated circuit leverages science and machinery that, that are themselves at the cutting edge. So in uh-huh. other words, there is no one point of contact where I just go, okay, I get that expert or I get an expert in this thing and now I can do this. You actually have to build uh, not only a massive team of essentially the world's best at what they do, physicists, machinists, all kinds of things, but then two, you have to have the best equipment and the people who can run and maintain that equipment. So, I mean, it it is a massive enterprise, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's just a very small pool of people who can do that. Now, on top of that for China specifically, we have worked out this just elegant solution as a kind of a holding strategy for the, for the near term that is preventing China from being able to do exactly what you've said. So, all of the the you know one of the one of the fundamental technologies that allow us to build a cutting edge semiconductor. And when we talk about semiconductor, we're we're talking about circuitry that's smaller than like an atom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, this is like magic. This is crazy stuff. And um, there is a machine called a photolithography machine, and it's made by one company, a company called ASML, and uh, they can only build so many of these machines and they're way back ordered. And they're the only ones, for all the reasons I've described as sort of the technical, technological sophistication, that can do this. And the United and they're States. they're a Taiwanese company, company too? No, they're a Dutch company. They're uh-huh. a Dutch company. And we, the United States, went to them and we said, um, so, so the United States is the number one uh, import. Uh, uh, purchaser of, of, of Mm -hmm. semiconductors. And so that obviously gives us a lot of sway. And we went to ASML and said, okay, here's the deal. You're not ever, ever, ever going to sell one of these machines to China. Um, and if you do, you know, you're going to be cut off and that's going to be a real problem. Thankfully, I don't think that took a lot of convincing. I think ASML understood and they were, they happily complied. So, but what that has done is that has severely restricted Um, China's ability to kind of get into the manufacturing and fabrication game. Now, you would be right to think that if I'm China, I'm going to spend whatever it is I have to spend to steal the blueprints of that photolithography machine, and I'm going to just build and build and build until I get it right. And no doubt they're probably doing that. So this this strategy, you know, has a sunset at some point. But the difficulty of of all of this, of, of building the machinery Assembling the team and then putting that all together to build something that is just in, intrinsically, insanely difficult, so far is 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 preventing them from realizing um, the ability to 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 do this. And so, if China invades,
1: um, Taiwan is basically threatened to blow the whole thing up, right? Which would be bad for us, but also super bad for China because China. Is China's economy is, you know, I don't want to say it's more dependent on semiconductors than our economy is, but their concern about their economic growth is so much more wrapped up in the legitimacy of the regime that uh, the, con- the 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 risk reward calculation is just very different for them. Also, we're not looking to invade Taiwan, right? So, right. It's like, you know, <laughs> we're not thinking about you know. Seizing that factory the way the, the Chinese are, but the, the Taiwanese basically said, the, the Taiwanese have basically said, you know, you step on our shores, we set fire
0: to the thing, right? Yeah. So uh, s- some TSMC engineers have said that publicly, and even the CEO of the company has said, like, there's no way that China's going to get a hold of this. Um, now, I do think I, I do worry that that, that someone you know, Xi Jinping, the president of China could decide, well, you know what, we're not getting access to these to the, to the cutting-edge stuff that we need anyways, um, and you know, we're getting closer to being able to build these general purpose, although they're not quite there. But, but they may say, so you know, losing this stuff at TSMC will hurt, but it will hurt the U.S. even more. And, and once they kind of run out of, of, of their supplies, then it, it causes the, the United States to kind of come down to our level. And so much of their, you know, military and warfighting doctrine depends on, you know, these kind of networks of networks and so on and so forth. And, you know, all the most advanced military capabilities are leveraging these cutting-edge or or are increasingly leveraging these these cutting-edge semiconductors. So there would be a rationale that said, okay, there is no no way forward uh, where this doesn't hurt us, thinks Beijing, but I think it may hurt. The West more and over the long term actually evens the game a little bit for us, and so the cost benefit, as you said, may actually work in in some kind of strange calculus in their mind. I don't think it's as clean as all that, but it's not crazy, you know. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a rationale there that would that would cause them to do that. This thing I keep thinking about is is actually
1: an idea our our colleague Lyman Stone put in my head, and I've written a little bit about this of lately about how you know sort of like going back to the whole you know. Problem of if you're a dictator and you don't like bad news, people stop telling you bad news, right? That sort of dynamic informs the organization of these societies vertically and horizontally, right? It makes them they can be very strong, but they're also very brittle, right? And um, and Lyman made this point because I was asking him. We were talking about COVID. And I was like, what are the because he was one of the first guests who knew anything about the that stuff that we had on the Remnant at the beginning of the pandemic two years ago, and I was like, so what if, you know what, what, are, what are some of the things about how the pandemic played out that surprised you?" And he said, "Well, you know, one of the things that it just I would not have predicted is that in America, you know this is we're not quite at a million deaths, but he, it was it's been clear for a while we're going to hit a million deaths." And he was like, "The idea that you could have a million deaths from a pandemic, and it would not cause like there's been a lot of turmoil from COVID. But the death rate really hasn't been the driver of it, right? It's masks and vaccines and and all that stuff. And he was like, I would have predicted that you know a country, you know the United States, a million deaths um, would have caused major social dislocations and political whatever. And he said, and and anyway, so I've been thinking about that a lot. And then he was like, and meanwhile, you know, you have China having its zero COVID policy. The the disaster of Shanghai wasn't clear that when I had Lyman on and then you have Russia, which is just lying about its numbers and has been lying about its COVID numbers. I mean, I I think there's reason to distrust some of China's numbers, but I had a guy on from the economist tracks this stuff and he says there, you know, their excess death rates withstand general statistical scrutiny in the way that the Russians don't. Um, and, uh, And anyway, so Lyman's point was that, you know, these regimes are more worried about their legitimacy that, you know, in America, when you give people the individual choice about how to respond to a pandemic, they just get less angry at the government for screwing up a pandemic than in a country where the government says, we will take care of you. We've got this under control. We are in charge and we are going to deprive you of the personal agency to make these important decisions. We're going to tell you. You have to get vaccinated or we're going to tell you you don't need to be vaccinated. We're going to tell you when to stay in your house, when you're not going to stay. You, we are absolving you of making these decisions. And in that, those kinds of societies, mass death rates, or at least public knowledge of mass death rates are more, uh, delegitimizing of the regime than they are in a a country where people get to make their own calls for the most part. And I, I start to wonder whether or not Xi looks at Ukraine. And says, well, crap, I, I don't, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure our regime could with, withstand the blowback if things don't go perfectly, right? I mean, that, that explains a big chunk of what's going on in Shanghai. And, um, and I know there's an internal debate at AI about whether or not Xi cares what happens in Ukraine or reads it as uh, a reason to be cautious about Ukraine. Or a reason or the lesson he learns is, no, you actually do, got to do what Putin actually planned on doing and just do it really, really fast. Where do you stand on all of that as I stop filibustering?
0: Well, it's good. Um, on, the, on the kind of philosophical point, um, I do think it is amazing uh, that we could have you know eventually a million deaths and that things aren't just insane. That, that At the beginning of all this, I don't know that any of us would have expected that. Uh, as I think about it, I think we 're keep- like nine hundred and
1: seventy thousand now or Oh, right i mean it's it 's really it's really close yeah,
0: yeah. um I, as I think about it i'm reminded uh of this idea of, of political opportunity structures, meaning we throughout our society we have all of these pressure release valves right um, right you know because we 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 have multiple avenues of engagement with our government uh local state, federal. We can change our government and have been you know, through various elections. And, and so the general population, even though it, it, it rhetorically would communicate something differently, experientially, people are still able to feel like, um, I can affect change. I don't like what's going on. I can, I can change this and I'm not stuck with it. Um, that's not the case in, in Russia and in China. Right. I mean, there, there's no there's, there's no real alternatives to Xi in in, in China uh, and, and the normal everyday Chinese citizen certainly doesn't feel like they're going to have any influence uh, on on who the CCP chooses as, as its leader. Um, and, and yeah, so I do think that that creates um, well, that necessarily makes the legitimacy of the governing body catastrophically central. Right. And and you because you, as you said, they're coming in and they're telling your people, uh, we're going to make these decisions for you. There's nothing you can do to change that. And you know, and 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 you and you have to trust us. Well, that's a that's a that's a bet the business bet, you know, that that you either got you either deliver on that or you begin losing legitimacy and 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 every government is fundamentally dis, kind of decisively dependent on their perceived legitimacy. Um okay so there's there's the kind of philosophical point I I'm glad that our system has these multiple uh political opportunity structures kind of built into it. Um on how this is affecting China and and it's thinking about Taiwan of course we don't know I think they probably are still figuring this out right this is very much a movie that's still playing. One of something I wrote in the current uh a couple of weeks ago was one of the lessons I'm concerned that China could take from all of this um precisely based on the point that you were saying in terms of in part wanting to limit domestic opposition um would be you know in the past they may have thought well, we'll do a slow choke of taiwan we'll we'll do a blockade. We'll, and we'll just slowly choke them off to where they have to capitulate. I imagine that war plan has probably gone out the window and they could instead conclude like, okay, there's no, there's no slow roll here. It has to be done in 72 hours and it has to be massive. You know, whereas in the past, maybe we, could, maybe we could keep TSMC and maybe we could keep a lot of the infrastructure. But I think, you know, again, based on the conversation that we're having at the beginning of this is why Russia may have chosen to do what it's done. China's absolutely looking at that and 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 could easily conclude all right you know what we don't we 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 can't save all of this stuff if we want to forcibly reunify this in a politically palatable timeline it's going to take an overwhelming force it's going to necessarily include massive destruction we're going to have to completely and decisively act militarily cyber and every other way and then we'll just rebuild it after it's ours that's awful and it's not at all guaranteed to succeed But it's not an irrational conclusion in light of what they're observing in Ukraine. I'm I'm very pro doing what
1: we can, where we can for Taiwan. I don't know that we want to get into a full-blown shooting war with China that we could lose, (laughs) um, you know, uh, with China over Taiwan. Um, So I'm kind of glad I don't have to make that decision. But the one thing I think is pretty, I feel pretty strongly is we can't care about saving Taiwan more than the Taiwanese do. Every time I talk to people about this, I get different weird answers that make me realize I just don't understand Taiwanese politics or culture very well. How do you assess that? I mean, like, you know, that world a little, and a lot better than I do. Um, like,
0: do you think there's a Taiwanese Zelensky, you know, in the, in the often? I mean, yeah. I, I don't know that. Well, I don't know. I don't think we knew we had a Zelensky until bombs started falling. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, okay. So, if I were to assume the side of the Taiwanese, I'd say you know they're they're definitely tap dancing on a lead mine, right? I mean, they they have to talk about these things in a certain way to where, to the U.S. and Western audience, they have to communicate resolve, but always mindful of the Chinese audience that
1: mm-hmm.
0: too clear of a commitment and 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 uh, of to resolution and and to to defense. Could actually provoke an action, right? That that might be interpreted by by, the, by Beijing as, as an intention, uh, and so they're they're always managing that. Uh, two, you'll remember as we were preparing, uh, as as the president as President Biden was, um, you know, kind of what we what we now call prebunking a lot of the Russian moves before they actually invaded. Zelensky was like, "Hey, dude, you know, like you're killing my economy." <laughs> can you can kind of kill the, 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 the hyperbolic, you know, warnings, you know? Um, and that's because in that moment, he had these interests where he was trying to maintain some sliver of daylight for a non-invasion scenario. And two, as he was preparing the government for the eventuality of, of, a, of an invasion, trying to keep the economy humming for as long as he could so they had the resources he needed to withstand that. Taiwan's in the exact same place, right they're They're trying to figure out how they can have their cake and eat it too right now I, I, I take the Taiwanese at their word when they i i don't think they I don't think many Taiwanese are sympathetic toward mainland China at all. Uh, I think they would much prefer just to keep the status quo they're They're doing well, they're thriving, they've got a democratic institution uh, and 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 they would like that to stick around. I do think, however. That we're we're coming to a point that because of choices that mainland China is making, the status quo is going to have to change. And I understand that that necessarily might move us, might make conflict more likely, but everybody just has to accept the fact that there is no risk-free way forward. There is no, there is no policy option where, where we avoid escalating risk. That's just kind of where we are, and that's because the other guy gets a vote. And in the case uh, of China, you know, their intentions and, and, and desires are becoming increasingly well known. So all that to say, one of the ways that I think we could do a lot of good, and I've, I've written about this publicly, is in the exact same way that we have done those hunt forward teams in Ukraine, I think we should be doing that in Taiwan right now. I think we should be all over their networks. And that would require Taiwan, Taiwan you know, kind of opening up their robes in ways that nations typically don't do for one another. But you know, if they understood the existential challenge of all this, I think we've more than earned their, um, their trust and we need to be sitting and going through their networks and doing active threat hunting and kicking the Chinese out. Because if we wait until, you know, zero day when things cook off, it'll be way too late.
1: All right, my friend, thank you so much for doing this, you know, very short notice, um, no prep time. Um, and, uh, Um, and not the cheeriest of subjects you know um how's your dog we should ask because uh he um he had an incident recently
0: yeah bo swallowed a small bone and it got stuck in his lower intestine five thousand dollars later he's doing fine uh he's he's up and he's up and moving he's uh yeah he's he's almost back to his old self so uh, i'll let him know you asked um, on the on the negative, being the cyber guy, I do just tend to be the the downer at every party, and I don't like that. I will say this: while I think the next five to ten years are fraught with with real challenges, um, I actually think that we're moving into a place where, if we navigate those well, we're actually set up to thrive long term. Um, it's going to take some serious consideration it's going to take some serious trade-offs and we're going to have to invest it's not going to just happen um but i think if we if we do those things um there's actually real good reason to be optimistic long term for our nation and that's something i'm encouraged by oh right, well, we'll leave it on a happy note
1: yeah you know there you go more <laughs> optimism i like it um Klon kitchen author of the dispatch newsletter the current my colleague at the american enterprise institute all around Mench, and. Uh, Thank you very much for doing this. My pleasure. All right, so uh, Klon has left the uh, studio or the chat or whatever we call this thing. Um, I hope people found that interesting. I find this stuff really, really interesting, and um, it's great to have Klon on the team at the dispatch, never mind AAI. Uh And if you were a member of the dispatch, you could read all of his newsletters, which have, um, you know, he's one of these guys that, you know, people who actually do this stuff as policy in Washington, congressmen, senators, Pentagon officials, NSA officials, all those guys. They, um, they read his stuff. They rely on his stuff, uh, quite often. Um, and we know that because when we brought Klon over, um, we knew who was already subscribing to his, or we knew some of the people who were subscribing to the newsletter he was writing before he joined the dispatch. Um, he's the real deal and he's a good dude. And, uh, we're delighted to have him on board. Uh, so, uh, I got some crazy stuff going on, uh, in my life. I, uh, not clear what the next couple podcasts are going to be. Uh, we do, we did record yesterday for over two hours with Matt Continetti on his new book, the right, um, which, uh, 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 pub date is next week. Um, maybe we'll show a little leg and do uh, half of it this week and then the other half on next week or we'll see. It is a uh, fair warning. It is for people who want to nerd out on conservative stuff. And I will also say I feel like um, I could have gone for another three or four hours on some of it because it's just uh, this is the life I have chosen. So anyway, please, if you can, subscribe to The Dispatch. Become a member. Um, Good things will happen. And, And I'll see you next time.
0: No, you won't. It's a podcast.